crossing my fingers we can knock on wood that maybe we don't have anything bad but it always feels like March has something for us so you know it'll come again but today we can be grateful um, we need some gratitude in our life because of today's lessons um, yes we're going to say extra prayers today because we're talking about David and Bathsheba and like I said at the end of last week's study it is all downhill from here and we get a running start and so today's lesson, we just have to kind of center ourselves and ask God to be with us and to fill us up because this is not easy and we're going to push on it a little bit. And I want to go ahead and set up the expectation that I want you to engage. So share some thoughts, ask some questions. This is one of those lessons where we can get more out of this if we really engage than to just listen. And so we're going to prepare our hearts and minds and we're going to do it together and we'll be just fine. So let's have a prayer and we will get started. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. God, we give you thanks for bringing us together on this beautiful day and we ask that you open us up. Make some space inside our hearts and minds that your spirit can fill us up and that as we study these stories, we can be filled with some truth that will help inspire and transform us as we grow closer and closer to you each day. Be with those we hold in our hearts and minds, those who cannot be with us today, those who need your healing touch, those who may be near death, and those we love but see no longer. May they all feel your presence and be uplifted by our love. All this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so a reminder that we can ask questions here. And then those of you joining us online, there are chat fields. Bub is monitoring those fields. And so feel free to chat, ask questions, and we'll get those live. So today, we are going to be in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. This lesson is going to have three sections. We're going to talk about David and Bathsheba. We're going to talk about David and Uriah. And then we're gonna talk about the consequences of this story. We're not going to get all the way through chapter 12 because it's really just sort of extra stuff, but we're going to focus primarily on chapters 11 and the first half of chapter 12 because Nathan comes in for the save, which is about the only thing redemptive in this entire story. And so we're gonna begin with the story of David and Bathsheba. So I just wanna say again, there is a lot in this story. This story can be, we could spend months on this story, unpacking all the different dynamics, the way in which David operates, the way in which Bathsheba is victimized, poor Uriah, how God responds within the story. I mean, it's, we can turn this around and around and around. So we're gonna try and be productive and relatively efficient. But I do want to make sure that we do whatever you find valuable. So just get yourself some courage to make a comment or ask a question because this is a big old mess and nothing we do today is going to be deeply satisfying, but I hope that it gets us a little farther down the path and we can really glean something good from this super chunky story. And this is one of those, chapter 11, in the entire arc of the Bible itself has got to be in the top 10 of stories that can inform us in a meaningful way. And so just settle in and we're gonna marinate in all of the destruction. Okay, so here we go. We're gonna start off with the very first section of chapter 11. We're gonna divide this up into a handful of different verses and we're gonna try and discuss them in chunks as we go. Chapter 11, verse one, let's go. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab with his officers and all Israel with him. They ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. And what happened late one afternoon, when David rose from his couch and was walking about on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. David sent someone to inquire about the woman. It was reported, this is Bathsheba, 
daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she was purifying herself after her period. Then she returned to her house. The woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. Stop there. All right, so here we go. In this opening section, let's put some of this into context because the storyteller is quite intent on setting this up in a very specific way. So we're going to start with David, who is the great military commander. Now we know that David's reputation is such that he goes and he wins. He wins on the battlefield. That is really what raised him up to be king over Israel. David, that great military commander, is not with the troops in the beginning of this story. Instead, he sends Joab, who in the previous section was the one commanding the forces after David became king. He sent Joab to go and besiege the Ammonites. Nothing is said about why David is staying behind in Jerusalem. We can postulate a whole bunch of stuff. But it's very important for us, because the storyteller finds it important, that David is home alone. All of the men, the army, they're gone. They are out of town. And David, for some reason, is not there. Now, we can make up some stories. Joab is very capable. And so maybe David is trying to differentiate himself from being commander of the military because now he is king. And so in a sense, he's the commander in chief, like the president is the commander in chief, not actually going into battle, but staying back to oversee the battle. Joab becomes the commander in chief of the armies on the battlefield. Now that would make sense, except David's apparently not attending to any military strategy in this moment. He's not worried about where the different pieces of the army puzzle are going and how they're doing. David seems to kind of just be taking it easy. So David is at home. We do not know why. And he is idle. And we all know an idle mind. Oh, uh, yeah. So as we keep going, we read that late one afternoon when David rose from his couch. Now, what does that mean? David was having an afternoon nap. So David is obviously not terribly busy. And so he is having a nap. He gets up from his nap. And then since he has nothing to do, he goes and he takes a stroll. He goes up on the roof and he's looking around. Now, the roof of the king's palace would be much higher than everything else in the city. So he's looking down on the city. I just want to set that up because that's important because it's only from that vantage point that he would be able to see Bathsheba bathing. Now, what is interesting about this is that David is peering into someone else's home. So who knows what else he saw? So this is creepy and voyeuristic. So David is up there. He's looking around. He sees Bathsheba taking a bath. Now, as the story progresses, David is in a power position. That is very clear. And Bathsheba is also doing something that is pretty normal and standard. She's taking a bath. She is cleansing herself. She's not doing anything wrong. Now, let's be clear before we progress any farther about Bathsheba's characterization in this story. This story has been told for a very long time like Bathsheba is somehow enticing David, like she is seducing the king. She, being the sultry seductress, is taking advantage of poor weak David. What is he supposed to do? He's just a man. He's just a man on the roof seeing a pretty naked woman. It's her fault, right? That's the way the story has always been told. Bathsheba's the seductress, and David is just the victim here. And that is so very wrong. That is not even the way the story is told. So not only should we not draw that conclusion because that's cheap and lazy, but the story is not even told that way. Now, you likely have guessed, having been with me now for many years, that I am a very strong feminist. I am fully supportive of women's rights and their knowledge that social structures have often put women in bad positions where they are in a lower um, structure of power to many men, and that is not right. And I do not want 
do not write to me about being a feminist because I am, I have a mother and a sister and a wife and two daughters. And so if I wasn't a feminist, I would be the problem. And so that is the way that we do this, okay? At this point in time, we are not victim shaming Bathsheba because the way that this story is told, Bathsheba's the one who is taken advantage of. David is the king. Bathsheba's just someone out in the kingdom. And so she is doing nothing wrong. It even says, I mean, it literally says in the story, she's cleansing herself after her menstrual cycle. And I think we probably understand that whenever anyone touches blood in the Jewish tradition, they are unclean, ritually unclean. And so as women menstruate, they are ritually unclean. And once that finishes, then they have to go through a ritual cleansing in order to then be able to do specific things like worship at the temple or offer sacrifice or do any of that good work and kind of be out in the community again. So it is in explicit that the storyteller says Bathsheba had just finished her cycle and she's going through a ritual cleansing. She's actually doing the right stuff. She is, from all intent, a faithful person like following the letter of the law and doing the things she's supposed to do. David's the creep on the roof who is looking into her house to see her bathing. Now, another thing that is often misunderstood is that we, I think people don't even read this close enough to make this distinction. It's often said that Bathsheba's on the roof. No, David's on the roof. Bathsheba's taken aback. I mean, if you look really carefully at what the story says, David rose from his couch. He was walking on the roof of the king's house and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. All right, so Bathsheba's not even doing anything that could even be anywhere considered illicit. She's just doing her good stuff in her house by herself the way she should be. So David sees Bathsheba. That is the problem. And David wants to know who she is. And it is very interesting grammatically what happens in the next few verses. David, as our commentary says, and his agents are the subject of a series of verbs that as our, common, uh, as our commentary says, are chilling for Bathsheba. I thought that was quite good. David saw, David sent, David inquired, David sent again, his people got her, and then David slept with. David, is all of the action. Bathsheba is just there. And even in the end, what do we hear? The woman conceived. I mean, the storyteller could not lower Bathsheba or bring her farther out of this story. She has no agency at all. David has all the agency in this story. It is absolutely explicit in the way the story is structured. David is the problem. And as we continue beyond these verses, David is the focus because David was the problem. Just put yourself in this monarchical structure. Do you think Bathsheba could have said no? David is the king. Bathsheba is there. Her husband is gone. We know that. We're getting there. Bathsheba is told the king wants to see her. What is she supposed to say? No. You don't say no to the king. And so imagine her showing up to meet with the king the king wants to sleep with her. What is she supposed to do? She can't say no to the king. And so Bathsheba is over and over again put in this weak victim position. David is the one with all the agency. Now I want us to pause and I want us to have a chat about what you see in this story, the questions you may have about this story. And let's unpack this a little bit because this is the setup for what will ultimately be David's, I mean, I may even say the most heinous action, and then the consequence. And so we need to get this right before we go on to what happens with Uriah. So what are your thoughts or your questions? She's a part of the Me Too generation. Ah, this is a good early Me Too moment. Yes, she is absolutely victimized here, no question. Yeah. <laughs> 
Great question. So would she have been actually inside a walled roofed room or would she have been in her house, but maybe like a courtyard where it would have been open air, but walled off that kind of thing. It's a great question. There was certainly no indoor plumbing. So they would have brought water to a tub of some kind or to a cistern of some kind. Um, there would have been baths in public spaces. And it's, it's most likely that Bathsheba would not have been wealthy enough to have had a bath in her own home. It would have been more of like a shared space where only women would have gone to bathe. And so it could have been that it was a common space that any woman would have been able to come and use um, for bathing. It could also be that she would have been doing a ritual bath. It is not made clear here whether it was a ritual bath or whether it was a just functional bath. Um, given that the storyteller says she was purifying herself, that word is interesting to me because I think rather than just saying she was bathing or cleansing, purifying is a much stronger word. So my, my gut says that implicit here is that she was actually going through a ritual cleansing. Not, it wasn't just cleaning some dirt off her skin. It wasn't that. It was really about the ritual purification after a menstrual cycle. And so if that's the case, she was almost certainly doing that in a public space. And whether there were other women with her, we don't know. It's most likely that other women would have been there as well because it would have been the place where women would have gone very regularly to be ritually clean, cleansed. Susie, yeah. So this was the biggest argument that we had in our four years of being. We had, and we were not, we were, I think we were reading like 2,000 years of Christianity or something. Okay. <laughs> women in this very small class said, hashtag, me too. The other half said, are you kidding? She knew he walked the roof all the time. She had her bath drawn out to the little courtyard. And I mean, you know, I mean this came almost to a battle. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the observation being that in EFM, which pause, EFM stands for Education for Ministry. It is a four-year program that anyone can do that is developed and maintained through the University of the South, through Sewanee. And I want to lift it up as something, if any of you are interested in doing some legit study, and I really do mean it, it is a few hours of kind of being together every week for years. It is essentially like almost distance learning seminary. And so if you really would like to do this, we've had dozens of people do that here at St. Michael, um, and we have classes going every year. It's amazing, but it is a commitment. And so we just read the comment that during any of them session, this was the most hotly contested passage of all in those four years. I'm not surprised. Um, and it was said, she said that about half the women, were there men there too? Or were there all women? All women, okay. About half the women said, total victim. Uh, the other half said, absolutely not. She knew he was walking the roof. She made sure to draw her bath at the time that he was up there on the roof looking around. We cannot know for sure whether Bathsheba had any intentionality. But I think if we look at the grammatical structure of this story, one thing is very clear. Bathsheba's not the point of the story. She's named and then she's almost unnamed again. I mean, she's referred to more often as the woman than she is by her own name. And so I think that the storyteller does not mean for this story to be about her. She is simply a piece or a pawn in a story that's really meant to be about David and what David does and the wrong that David does. That's the point of the story. That does not mean that she had no intention. And so I'm gonna say it again, like a good feminist, I don't take agency away. She may, there's nothing wrong with saying she knew. Okay, but David does the action here. 
David has the agency. David may not understand the way that many powerful people do not understand that their power requires responsibility to not misuse it. And I think that's still the case in our world. That's most often men, but it's more and more, hopefully not all men. And regardless of whether it's a man or a woman, whoever is in power has a responsibility not to abuse that power. Whether it's a king, whether it's a president, whether it's a priest, whether it's you name it, anyone with that has power in any relationship has to respect that and understand that they are not the same. I cannot go into a room with a parishioner and not be very clear that I am the priest in the room. I have to respect that and be responsible for that. I am not a victim for my own ignorance. That's not how that works. And I have to be aware of that in the same way that anyone, if a boss is in a room with a supervisee, they have the power and on and on and on. We have to be more sophisticated than I think people thought they needed to be in years past. It, we just, we cannot feign ignorance because we gleefully seek to be unaware of our power within relationships. It's not okay. Um, I've got the new Oxford, uh, and it actually puts that from it. It's parenthetical. Now she was here by herself after drinking. That comes after he laid with her. Wouldn't that be like double, triple bad? <laughs> My God, seriously, you're asking me that question? Um, so, yes. I mean, it just Technically, it's the same thing in the RSV. So the observation is the note about how she was purifying herself after her period comes after David slept with her. So David, and, and I say that, be, there is, you could absolutely read this as she was raped. I mean, I just want to say that because there is no consent of any kind. And she is, I mean, talk about a differentiation of power. She... I mean, whether or not she said yes, no, it doesn't matter. Um, there was a power dynamic here that is really a tragedy. But the note about cleansing herself after her period comes after David laid with her. And so in a sense, David not only is doing something wrong against Bathsheba, he could potentially be breaking his religious laws because she would be an unclean person because she would have been exposed to blood and had not gone through the ritual purification. Now, I think on the hierarchy of wrongs here, that's lower on the list. But technically speaking, yes, that kind of just adds to the mess of the whole situation. Yes? I, I wonder that um, maybe the writer is setting, setting, us up a little, setting the story up a little bit to talk about what God's going to do about this because David being the king, which is huge, he's violated at least two obvious commandments, if not all of them. <laughs> and then we're gonna go on to find out what, what God's gonna do about it. So I love that observation, Judy, because naturally I hope as sharp biblical scholars, a question we should ask is, why is this even in the story? I mean, couldn't this have been edited out? I mean, it seems like in the grand scheme of things, someone might have said, hey, leave out the adultery. I mean, you know, it's like David is held up as this wonderful example of what we should all aspire to be. Somehow, someone said this story is important to put in here, so why? So it really is not about Bathsheba at all. It's about David doing something wrong, but even more than that, it's about the way in which David tries to reconcile the wrong and how God relates to David in that reconciliation. So that's the ultimate here. When we get to the part with Nathan, we're going to see that David differentiates himself from Saul in a very important way. And so we're gonna talk about that. It's a good observation. Yes, but. Well, there you go. So if David's revered, why is this story here? I will argue that David's reverence is because of stories like this. 
I think that David being such a flawed person actually makes him such a great example for us. And so we're going to get there. That's the third section of today. So thank you. Any other thoughts or questions? This is good. I love this. Yes. Now that's a great question. Do we think that this is a one-off? <laughs> you know, it seems like for him and Bathsheba. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's totally legitimate to say how many times did he do this, and is this story the one recorded because this is the one that happens to be the woman who got pregnant. Um, it, it certainly could be a pattern of behavior. We have no way of knowing. And I don't mean to make David out to be this horrible person, but this is a very big wrong. And we need to acknowledge, we should not figure out how to let David off for this. That's, that's really, really not the point. I mean, back to how does God respond and what does David do? We have to let David be very wrong, 100% wrong. Do not let him off the hook because it's the point of the story, the, the best, most impactful thing for us is that David was completely wrong and he gets worse. He gets more wrong. And so all of that has to be totally wrong in order for God to come in and do something that is in some way grace-filled because that is really the point of the story for us. We can spend a huge amount of time on whether David did this or what was his real intention and what did Bathsheba know and didn't know and then would this have happened again? And all of those questions are good, but I don't want us to miss what is the most valuable point of this story, which we're gonna to get to in the conversation with Nathan. But I do think that this, saying this was a one-off, seems a little odd because it does seem like everyone helped David do the thing that maybe David had been doing. And the oops was Bathsheba got pregnant. He so wanted to have Bathsheba is the reason he killed Uriah. We're getting there. Yep. So So where's the line between like this is ultimately sort of me doing some very bad stuff. And the ways this has gotten used, particularly with um, pastors, to absolve them of horrible Good. Um, <laughs> thank you. That was a very good part of your question that you emailed me. Um, so Sally asks, let's step out of scripture study and let's acknowledge that in our culture, we are very quick to forgive wrongs like this that have been committed by people in power. And in particular, let's stick with, I'll stick with my lane, which is church leaders. And we have seen over and over again, if you haven't seen this, then FYI, this story has been used over and over again when pastors sexually assault people, I won't even say women because it's been men too, and then seek forgiveness from their church communities. This story is always referenced as, well, look what David did. God forgave David. God should forgive the pastor who did this wrong thing. Now, let me talk, let me differentiate something. And this is just now, this is just me talking. Everyone can be forgiven for doing wrong, yes. I believe that's what we are told in our gospel. Jesus makes it explicit that nothing we've done and nothing we will do will separate us from God's love, period. It does not matter how terrible, everyone can reconcile and everyone can be forgiven. There is that, and then there is, then what can you do after that point? And what I would say is, what I have is the trust in a congregation that I respect and hold as a privilege, I can absolutely lose that. Every church leader should 
be able to lose that if they do wrong. That does not mean that we would not be forgiven, but to be replaced in that power seat again? No. I think you can lose that. The end. I think there are things that I could do, that Episcopal priests could do, that any church pastor could do, that takes us out of that role for good. The end. That doesn't mean that we are not forgiven, and that doesn't mean that we are not loved by God. And that doesn't mean that we cannot work toward love and trust again in a community of people, but not in that power position again. No, it's not okay. We should be removed from that. And that's the responsibility we take on. That's the, um, that's the, I hate to say that's the risk, because that seems like the wrong, that's not the word I want to use. That's the, um, oh, my words fail me. I know that going into my role that I am in, and I respect that. And the people who do not should not then, they shouldn't have been in the role in the first place, nor should they ever get that role again. I think that is, there's, I, there's no way that I can make that okay. And so for us, I want us to seek to be comfortable with the tension of someone being forgiven and yet someone not being able to have the same role they had before the wrong they committed. That is a tension. We often think that, you know, anyone who's raised a child has probably said something to the effect of, you made a bad choice, but you're not a bad person. <laughs> That's really what we're talking about here. But the bad choice can take you out of a leadership role. Doesn't mean that you can't reconcile who you are as a child of God because we are all we are all messy and we all make mistakes there are really bad mistakes but it doesn't mean I think in God's economy a mistake is a mistake and seeking to reconcile and repair that's our job when we make a mistake whether it's big or small and we should not be put back in those roles again I mean my God look at the Catholic Church and all the abuse scandals I mean, if someone does something terrible like that, you take them out of that role. You do not shift them to another role where they can do it again. You do not cast some cheap forgiveness by quoting the Bible. I mean, my, I have to think, talk about making God angry. You're going to go abuse someone and then you're going to use scripture to defend the abuser and then put them in a position where they can abuse again. Man, I'm going to tell you what. God's pissed about that. <laughs> that is how that works. Um, that That's not okay. Chris, I keep thinking of education, you know, and like I always said, I don't care who's sleeping with who as long as it's two adults, but a teacher with a student, that they get fired. See, they, they, they have to pay so why doesn't everybody else? And they should. Yeah, well, I, so the observation being, you know, there are some industries, I will say, um, like, say, education, where if a teacher does that with a student, that teacher's out. Then there are other industries, like the church, where I think a person using a story like this to somehow reclaim their authority, as if God would want them in the position to abuse again, is the just the pinnacle of manipulation. I would want you all to be clear enough theologically to be able to hold those two things in tension because a person can still go and be a productive member of society, but not in that role again, not in that high level of There are most jobs do not require that kind of extremely high level of trust. Most jobs are just J-O-Bs. You just show up and then you go home and that's it. But when you talk about teachers, priests and pastors and the like, that kind of trust, you get it and then you lose it. And when you lose it, you lost it. And that's okay because you hold those two things in tension. You can still be loved, but you're not in that role anymore. That took All right. 2,000 years. That took 2,000 years? Dude, that took like 12,000 years. Yes. <laughs> seeing that over time, that Sheena has been blamed. So 
I don't understand in that class how a group of women can read this scripture and come to that conclusion. And how did that manifest itself over time? That is so nice of you. Um, the idea, you know, the question, how could a group of women kind of be split 50-50 where some think Bathsheba was definitely an agent and others thought she was a victim. And I would just say, look at the world. I mean, it stuns me. Oh, man, are you going to bait me into this? Hold on. <laughs> Um, let's see. I think that our culture has formed us in a few very specific ways. And I do not want to, to essentially do the same thing that people are doing to Bathsheba to anyone else who sympathizes with Bathsheba. There, much of how we see the world is in, in a sense has been done to us. We have been shaped so much by the people who raised us, the people we associate with, the news we watch, the books we read. All of that contributes to how we will see a story like this. I do think that one of the reasons why I try to do things like stick with the grammar, stick with the literary structure is because it is so much less interpretive. If the author wrote this story to attribute agency to Bathsheba, we have to attribute agency to Bathsheba. It's the way the story was written. That story was not written this way. And so it is much less our feeling about Bathsheba when we stick to what the words say. There still are ways to perceive the world that is factual. The words are here. Someone can feel something about these words, but it doesn't change the words. And so I think our starting place is what the words actually say. If we want to build an interpretation around that, even a theology around that, that's our right but I, I want us to be sophisticated enough to know that it's kind of like extrapolating statistical models. The farther you go from the actual literal numbers you know, the less accurate it becomes. And so we can't take too many steps away from what is actually in the story without then getting into a super gray unknown space. And then we begin to get dangerous we begin to put ourselves in a position to misunderstand God. That's why I say it all the time. When we see something in scripture, from the letters, from the Old Testament, from the prophets, whatever, that seems to conflict with what we see from Jesus in the gospels, we gotta come, come back to Jesus and say, that's just a bridge too far. We have gone too far and we get uncomfortable with Jesus's vagueness. Because like I've said a hundred times, Jesus says, you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't tell us how and when and only if they do certain things and what happens if they do other things. Not, nope, he doesn't go into all that. He just says, you gotta love them. Which is why no matter what someone does, we are required to love them. I mean, there are examples of this all the time in church. Here's a good one. When I came to St. Michael, we actually weren't praying on Sunday morning for the series of elected leaders we pray for now, which for us is president, governor of Texas, mayor of Dallas. I mean, that's, we could obviously go on and on and on for a lot of people, but we pray for those three individuals by name every Sunday morning. Now, that isn't always a problem if you like those people, but I have, I have heard from multiple people that they haven't always liked one of those three people. And so the point being, when you like someone, pray for them, but when you don't like someone, really pray for them. That's actually the best for us. It is easy to love a person who's lovable. It's easy to love a person we agree with. It is a whole lot harder to love an unlovable person or a person we disagree with. 
that's when we really have to try and we really have to put it into our behavior and our patterns because that's what we're told that we're supposed to do. And so, sorry, I'll stop there. Okay, last. So, the actual words She probably would have had about a week after her period ended when she would have been ovulating, and that's the highest chance for her to get pregnant. I mean, any of us who've been aware of this knows this. Um, it is hard for us to uh, attribute literal time to these stories. That's not the storyteller's intention. Um, I, I don't think we should read it that way. Um, I also think that you never know. I mean, you can get pregnant anytime. It's just more likely, not impossible. So ovulation is only just a statistically more likely to be pregnant. It's not the only time. And so thank you for that. No more OBGYN stuff. Okay. So let's keep going or we're never going to finish. And I knew, I knew we were going to do, I love this by the way. This is, I, I want us to mess with this and get into it because it's good for us. Let's take a look at David and Uriah because David and Bathsheba is only the beginning of this disaster. So look at verse six. David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab and the people fared and how the war is going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the entrance of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, you've just come from a journey. Why didn't you go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark in Israel and Judah remains in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to Uriah, remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day. On the next day, David invited him to eat and drink in his presence and made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. We'll pause there. So David gets stuck. Oops, Bathsheba's pregnant. And so David's trying to get out of this. And by getting out of this, David sends for Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. He comes in from the battlefield and David thinks, surely he's gonna go home. Whether he sleeps with Bathsheba or not, he needs to go into their house so that Bathsheba's pregnancy can be legitimized by her husband's presence. But Uriah is a good guy. And Uriah comes home, he has an audience with the king, and then he goes and he sleeps with all the king's servants. And why? Because he is faithful to his fellow soldiers. They're out on the battlefield. They are fighting, they're sleeping in tents. The ark is not even in a home. So why should Uriah go home? He should not get any special treatment that the rest of his company does not get. Now, talk about a good guy. And so David sees that Uriah doesn't go home. And so he's like, hey, hey I can totally see it. Uriah, why sleeping out here? You know, you should go home, you're here. Come on, you should go home. I give you permission, you should go home. And so Uriah says, no, I can't. So not only was it implicit that Uriah was a good guy, Uriah says to David, I'm not doing that kind of thing because I am faithful to my job as a soldier. I am faithful to you as my king. I am faithful to God. And I can just imagine David, crap. Like Uriah had to be the good guy. Like Bathsheba's husband couldn't just be a regular selfish guy. He had to be an upstanding faithful guy. And so he does not go home. And so David has to pivot. 
What had seemed like a relatively simple way to legitimize Bathsheba's pregnancy and kind of get David off the hook now becomes a problem. Because not only has Uriah come home and not gone to his house, but Uriah has not gone to his house publicly. He is sleeping with other people in public, the servants and the soldiers. So everyone knows Uriah didn't go home. So David cannot pin Bathsheba's pregnancy on Uriah. So David realizes he's got one other shot. And so he sends Uriah back with the letter to Joab saying, send him to the front lines so that he will be killed. And we really do not, well, we don't have time for this, but essentially the next section says Uriah carries this letter from David to Joab and it says, you've got to put Uriah on the front lines so he is killed. I mean, he's explicit. And so Joab sends a company of good soldiers, including Uriah, out to fight, knowing they will be overwhelmed and Uriah is killed. <laughs> Joab sends word back to David that he had some extra losses, but he made sure Uriah died with the soldiers. And so David finds out that Uriah is dead, Bathsheba mourns her husband's death. And when her mourning period was over, David sends for Bathsheba to come to his house and makes her his wife, one of his wives. So that essentially by the time her pregnancy is public, he will have already taken her as a wife. This is heinous. I mean, there's no way you can read this story and not just feel gross. Because David did something wrong with Bathsheba, yes, that's bad enough. If that was it, that would already be bad enough. But he just piles it on. He tries to dupe Uriah, and Uriah comes off as this totally upstanding, excellent person. So not only is David going to kill Bathsheba's husband in order to save his own skin, but David's going to kill a really good guy in order to save his skin. So the dichotomy here is blatant. The storyteller wants to make sure that the knife is twisted by Uriah being this excellent person, Bathsheba, victimized. And not only is she victimized physically, but now she's victimized in an emotional way in her relationship, she loses her husband. And you have to kind of think, I mean, we have no idea, total conjecture here, but Uriah seems like a pretty good guy. So my guess is that they probably had a good marriage. They probably were doing just fine. And so now Bathsheba is widowed because David tees up Uriah's murder. And then David brings Bathsheba into his house. And what is she supposed to do? Here she is, a young pregnant woman. Her husband is dead. She's got no options. And so saying yes again to the king is not only because he's the king, but because the alternative is she will be stoned. She'll be executed. And so she has to say yes to David to be his wife because it's survival. Everything about this is horrible. And there is no way out of how terrible the story really is. Well, I thought when you're in the Jewish tradition that if you're sitting Shiva for someone who died, then you're wrong. Oh, if you're sitting Shiva? Yeah. So it depends. Um, it is, it's important for us not to necessarily place Jewish law that is post-exile onto Jews pre-exile. So I know that's kind of a cheap thing to say, but it's legitimate. Um, most of what we know as Jewish law it's in particular, and I shouldn't say Jewish law. Well, it is law. Most of what we know is Jewish law that extends beyond the basics of the Ten Commandments is really a post-exile development. It's not that it wasn't in there, and there could be cultural expectations, but the law as we know it, the law that Jesus interacted with, and the law that we see in as particularly Orthodox Jews today, that is all stuff that comes after the exile. So we're still pre-exilic right now. David in the monarchy, the judges in monarch period is all before the exile. There are traditions, yes. Cultural expectations around things like mourning death, for sure. 
But this definitely does seem to imply that it would have been a short enough period that David could have gotten Bathsheba into his household maybe before she's showing or before, at least before she gives birth. Um, many of these things, in the same way that menstruation makes a woman ritually unclean, giving birth for sure does. And you are ritually unclean for a lot longer after giving birth. Why I say that is we might kind of quickly think Bathsheba's up walking around and doing stuff after she gives birth. No. She would have essentially been put away for months. She would have gone unseen. So the timing of when she gave birth is a little fuzzy. I mean, it could have been fudged so that she could have been, I mean, literally put in a room somewhere for months until she gave birth and then not seen for months after that. So really everyone just kind of sees, oh, hey Bathsheba, I mean, it's been a while and now you have a baby, of course you do. You've been the king's wife. I mean, that's not a hard story to construct. And I think that we can see how that would have um, benefited David because most people would not have been paying attention. And the only ones who would have known the real story would have never told because they would have been executed. I mean, they would have been dependents of the king. And so secret would be safe with them. I don't agree with this, but the tradition was that the woman's cousin died and she was pregnant, that it was good to marry her. So she was uh, with child with someone else to take care of her. But I don't trust David. <laughs> well, oh yes, for sure. David did not take Bathsheba as his wife to be, to, to be honorable. That's not really what's happening here. I do not want, I mean, poor David. We're just going to like Powell and David today. Um, David was saving himself and it would have been honorable kind of if the story had been tweaked a little differently, say Uriah had come back and Uriah had gone home and then Uriah went back to the field and Uriah was killed honestly in battle, that happens. David could have looked on Bathsheba and said, well, it really is my child. I'm going to take care of her and my child by bringing her into my household. That could have been a little bit more of the honorable thing to do, but that's not what happened. David queued up all of this to happen so that he could get Bathsheba as his wife so that he would not be discovered as an adulterer. He really is saving face. And the servants knew that, uh, that um, Uriah did not sleep her when he was home. Right. Everybody knew that Uriah was not home. So let's tie this up just a little bit real quickly and we'll do more of this next week. I want, to, I want you to know, do not feel bound by the weekly chapter assignments. So if you go home and you think about this and you say, what about that? Or I really wonder about X, Y, or Z. Email me, email above whomever, or bring it next week and ask the question because we don't have to be limited by only the certain chapters for that, that particular Wednesday. Don't worry about that. So let this percolate a little bit because this is a big story with a whole lot of dynamics. Um, so let's just jump to the end of chapter 11 because this is a really great moment. Remember Nathan? He's back. Nathan is that court prophet. And so if you look at the second half of chapter 11, verse 27, the very last half verse of chapter 11. This is one of those things that I'm not sure why they divided the chapters this way, but whatever. So we're looking at chapter 11, 27b is the way we would note this. And we're going to go right into chapter 12. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. No kidding. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. Nathan came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, 
And he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and then give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of you. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly sworn the Lord, the child that is born to you shall die. We'll pause there. So, Nathan comes to David with a little riddle. And I love David's self-righteous anger. As if David isn't enough of a jerk in this whole story. Verse 5, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man in the story and said, as, he, as the Lord lives, this man deserves to die. I mean, give me a break. I, I kind of feel for David like he sort of was trapped in his own ignorance but it's surely effective. And so Nathan says, duh, it's you. And David's stunned. And David, in a very, I mean, the storyteller does not give this a whole lot of drama, but essentially David confesses his sin. And Nathan absolves him of that sin, but not without consequence. David's household, will now be troubled. And the child that he had with Bathsheba will die. And that both of those things come to pass. We don't have a lot of time to unpack this, but I want you to remember this moment. Chapter 12, when Nathan says, trouble will come to your house. Remember last week, I said it was the high point and it's downhill from here. David does this horrible thing. And from here on out, David will not have a peaceful life. David's own house will rebel against him. His own sons will rebel against him. David will be met with tragedy over and over and over again. And remember this moment, because this is really the root of all that tragedy. Up to this point, David's been on an upward trajectory. Now David goes over the hump and it's all downhill. And it's not just David being the victim of bad circumstance. David got the ball rolling. It is really on him, even though Nathan gives him somewhat of an absolution. Um, I was so surprised in 13 when Nathan said, the Lord is taking away your sin. You are not going to die. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, that doesn't happen in the Old Testament. <laughs> so the absolution moment, um, Nathan, is it is a little unusual in the Old Testament. Um, we don't get a lot of that. And you can see, so I'll close today by saying the exchange between David and Nathan in chapter 12, verse 13, that is a very important nugget in understanding David's character. So at the beginning, we said, why would this story be? in the Bible. Why would David, as revered as he is, have this particular story told of him? I think it is because of verse 13. What David does over and over again, he is not perfect, but he is sorry. 
that, and I don't mean sorry like a loser. I mean, he is sorrowful for being so imperfect. That is the real learning of David's character. David is not a perfect person. He is so profoundly messy. And this is, hey y'all, this is one story. We're gonna get to more. David is messy again, and he's messy again. He's perhaps not as heinous as he is in this story, but he makes mistakes over and over again, and he says he's sorry over and over again. What is really so valuable to us, as we are looking to build our own discipleship, is to not hold up the perfect as the goal for us. Jesus does not wish us to be perfect, regardless of what your Methodist friends tell you. Jesus does not wish for us to be perfect. Jesus wishes for us to be in relationship. We are called to make sure that when we mess up, not if, when, and when we mess up every day, that we return to God. When we talk about repentance, that's the whole story. Every time, return to God. Small things, big things, everything in between. Return and seek forgiveness. Because what God promises is to always forgive and to always love us. So do not let the perfect get in the way of the meaningful repentance and repair of the relationship that we have with God. That is what I really, really want us to take from this lesson. In the most profound way, I don't think that any of us will ever do this kind of wrong, this level of wrong. I hope so. I hope we will never do this level of wrong, but even if we did, God will forgive and God's love will not be taken from us. And that's what we really get today in the story. And we'll continue next week. Thank you all guys. Have a great day.